This is Snails and Oysters. I'll say the title. Okay. No, I'll say, well, welcome to the snails. <laughs> and then you say the second part of the title. Welcome to snails. And oysters. A bisexual. Bi-coastal. Bi-coastal, <laughs> bi-weekly, bisexual podcast. Oh, God. Should, should we use this as the interest to show how relatably bumbling we are? Yes. Or should we cut it out? And... No, this is a perfect <laughs> relatably bumbling banter. Oh, Lord. How have you been, Allie? Um, okay, I want I'm going to say how I've been for real. Uh-huh. And then we'll think about cutting it cuz what if someone at work listens to my podcast? But do you ever have a day at work? <laughs> do you want to do you want to give a podcast safe version of that oh, answer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just got back from a trip, right? Yeah, I just went upstate and um it was kind of weird because it, we didn't mean for this to be the thing but it kind of ended up being this kind of like oh wow we're vaccinated and kind of back in the world and we stayed in this cabin and the first morning we woke up and we went outside and the the owners lived right next door just in like their house and they were like oh hey guys like did you get our message and we were like "Uh uh-uh what message and they were like um just like will you check to see if you can start your car and we were like why they were like well a porcupine came through last night chewed through the cables on both of our cars and neither of our cars will start oh my god our car started so we were like okay good and we were like that was really weird then we went out for like a long time doing a bunch of things and we came back at like 10 o'clock at night and my boyfriend was like wouldn't it be funny if we see the porcupine we turn he's literally sitting in front of the door chewing on the door this big porcupine. He was waiting for you. He knew he missed your car. He was waiting for you to come back. He oh my God. He wanted that sweet, sweet taste of Subaru. <laughs> and we, we chased him into the woods. He waddled away. They, well, he wasn't really scared. He was- <laughs> Of course not. Like, He's a fucking porcupine. <laughs> yeah. Madness. This is why humans left the wilderness. Yeah. Too many cavemen were driving their cars only to discover that the they, they wouldn't start because of saber-toothed porcupine bites. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you don't think that that's true, get at me. Get at me, yeah. I will fight oh. you. Um, what's up with you? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing so exciting nor interesting. No, I, I'm really excited to get this episode out because, as our listeners may recall, we recorded most of our conversations about the movies where in advance so a the audio quality is about to drop off a fucking cliff uh but b it's actually been a few months since i last watched portrait of a lady on fire and like getting ready to record today just made me think fuck i should rewatch that movie it's so good (laughs) i feel like i think about this movie like at least once a week i'd buy that yeah it's definitely like averages out to once a week for me because it's just it's so pretty and well written and it's so good (laughs) yeah i'm really psyched to watch this film this uh film has a really special place in my heart because it was the last thing i saw in theaters before the pandemic and i found it really really Mm -hmm. 
I yeah. forgot it came out. Yeah, I forgot it came out right around then. Yeah. Yeah, and I it was the last time I saw a really good friend of mine. We saw it together and got like a drink afterwards, and it was just such a beautiful, beautiful film. And I've watched it maybe twice since then. I can't quite remember. I've definitely seen it like twice or three times. I'm not sure now. Yeah, and um, every time I'm just like, it's just like a masterpiece in my mind. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a 2019 French historical drama written and directed by Céline Chiama and starring Noémie Merlant as a painter, Marianne, and Adèle Henel as her subject, Aloïse. The movie takes place almost entirely in an isolated manner off the coast of Brittany, near the end of the 1700s. The plot is relatively simple. Marianne has been hired to paint Aloïse's portrait in secret by Aloïse's mother, a countess. The Countess has arranged for her daughter to marry a Milanese nobleman, and the final step of the arrangement is that he needs to see her portrait, because this was pre-Instagram and actually pre-photograph. This is basically a thirst trap. Yeah. Eloise, however, isn't thrilled about marrying a complete stranger for some reason and refuses to sit for a portrait. By the time Marianne arrives, Eloise has already driven another artist to quit in frustration. The Countess instructs Marianne to act as Eloise's companion on walks, observe her, and paint her daughter's portrait without her knowledge. And it works! Marianne completes a portrait of Eloise, becoming close friends with her in the process. However, when the portrait is done, Marianne tells Eloise the truth and shows her the painting, which upsets her. Eloise criticizes the portrait and ruins Marianne's confidence in her work, which leads her to destroy the painting. The Countess is furious and is on the point of firing Marianne when Eloise intervenes and agrees to sit for the portrait after all protect Marianne. From there, Marianne begins to work on a second portrait, this time with Eloise modeling. The Countess heads to Italy to iron out the final arrangements for the marriage, leaving Marianne, Eloise, and their young maid Sophie alone in the house. Parents are gone. The three young women live as equals and become great friends, with Marianne and Eloise helping Sophie obtain an abortion when she becomes unexpectedly pregnant. Marianne and Eloise's relationship deepens into romance. After several days of just the most intense eye contact, Marianne and Eloise kiss on the beach and spend a night together. Knowing their time together is limited, they spend the next several days constantly in each other's company, either working on the portrait or in bed. And then it's over. The portrait is finished. The Countess returns. Marianne and Eloise say goodbye, keeping their love a secret. Marianne opens an art school in Paris and sees Eloise twice more, once as yet another portrait in a gallery, and once from across a theater. On the surface, it's an incredibly simple movie. There are four main characters, one major location, and a straightforward plot. But that simplicity is just the bedrock for a movie full of intense performances, rich subtext, and repeated symbolism. Let's dig into the subtext and the bisex. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, Nat wrote that joke and I'm reading it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's roll! Let's roll. I think I'll start. Please do. I don't know about you, but to me, it's like, first of all, I think this is the only film where I would like, I want to own the script in a physical form. I get that. I like, get that. 
like some people do that some people like to have like the actual scripts i've never felt that except with this film i i own two physical scripts uh one <laughs> one's for gosford park the robert altman movie and the other is for the adventures of baron munchausen the terry gilliam movie the munchausen one i picked up on a whim at the strand i think but the gosford park one i was like i need the script for this so i know what you mean that feeling of like i i need to get up inside this movie and understand it in every possible way well and i also feel like there's so many frames from the movie that i would want as just a poster in my room or that i could just stare at for so long as like yeah it's so good i honestly every frame of the movie is like that just every element from the framing to the costuming to the color palette like the the color palette throughout the whole film is this like rich verdant natural but uh saturated tones (laughs) it's really just it's like eating a slice of really decadent chocolate cake the whole time like it's it's oh this there there were moments when I was watching this film when I was like laughing at myself because I was like, this is a parody of a movie that I would love. Like this is so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's in French and the characters never really say what they mean. And like, it's about a painter falling in love with her subject. Like, and there are moments when they're like, you know, je te comprends. <laughs> like, I understand you. Part of why I like the movie so much is, I mean, like a lot of, lesbian films and literature there's an unhappy ending you know like they're not together but I felt like the unhappy ending was happening on a lot of different levels or at least one other level where like there's this class divide that feels kind of vague but you know you kind of think like if the painter was a man it's not like they could have run off together either you know she Heloise still had to go to Milan Milano. Milano. She starts to go to Milan to marry this rich person to secure her family's future. And I kind of liked that the tragedy was both because of who they were in life, what their futures held, but also primarily because of their genders. But and, and because Heloise ultimately does end up marrying a man and having a child, which we learned from the painting, and because I felt like I felt like Marianne Also, it seemed implied that she had had relationships with men when she and Eloise have that conversation. It's like, have you known love? I don't think we know either way, you know? I think it's pretty explicit because before, like in that exact conversation when Eloise asks Marianne, they get on the topic of love because... um, they're they're helping Sophie induce a miscarriage, and she, and Eloise asks Marianne, "Has this ever happened to you?" And Marianne's like, "Yeah." <laughs> oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, and so I feel very comfortable including Marianne in the bi canon. Eloise, it's ambiguous because she has a child later. That doesn't mean that she's attracted to men. Like it could be a function of her married life. Totally. Whereas like Marianne, I feel more on more solid ground saying, yes, she seems to at least have had an attraction to men in the past. Well, and she kind of seems like she feels very queer in her own gender presentation, you know, like her smoking a pipe. And just even in the first scene where she's in this boat full of men and loses her canvases, and yet she's the one that dives in after them. She's not like waiting for someone else to do it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like she feels like a really queer character. 
It and, does make sense. Oh, oh my god, that shot of her smoking her pipe in front of the fireplace between the two canvases as they dry out. Ah, oh, such a good shot. <laughs> I I think that's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of with the class element that um that even if one of them was a man, it still couldn't have worked. Yeah. And I don't know totally if class is the right word because I don't really get it's not like I'm like I get the sense that Marianne is in particularly impoverished. It's more just like this kind of old school like people had different stations in life. Station station is a really good way to put it. And that Eloise is Elo, I mean like Eloise is gets engaged to the Milanese gentleman because her sister is dead and can't marry him. And so the, it's it's not about oh, wouldn't it be nice if we intermarried with this family? It's like, no, we need to intermarry with this guy and we have two daughters available. I think you're right about Heloise that we don't know. That like Marion, it feels more clear that she is like a queer character, a bi character or whatever. Um, but Heloise, I think if anything, I think there's almost more evidence for her just being into women. Honestly, because she had been at a nunnery. And she was like, I loved it there. <laughs> I literally loved it. I think you're right. I think that Eloise is coded as gay rather than bi. Um, and so Marianne is really our bread and butter for this episode, um, which I'm fine with. Like, Marianne is an incredibly compelling character, I found. Really, like, so well acted, you know? Mm. Like, I think it would have been really hard if it was a different actress to like take a lot of those scenes of her painting seriously because she's has this it's like what you're talking about such an intense look on her face and there's something almost goofy about it like you could make a meme where she's like has that intense look and then you see she's painting spongebob and you're like what's happening (laughs) (laughs) i almost wondered while watching it like she was so convincing i almost wondered while watching it like is she actually painting right now like she seems like she's actually painting right now i know she wasn't but it it felt like that. It's like she was she was so convincing. Honestly, like the the acting is the the real star of the show in this movie, which I know sounds obvious, but it's it's not always the case. A lot of times films can lean on their cinematography or editing a lot more than the acting, and that's not good or bad. But this is the kind of film and maybe it's because there are just four named characters in the entire movie. But it felt really intensely actor-driven. Which is not to say that any of the other elements were lacking, just that they were were present and supportive, but the acting was really in the, the forefront. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. They like all the other elements were just around the actors. Yeah. It's it's like when uh, a musician takes a solo, you know, the other instruments can still be playing, but like you know where you know who you're listening to. <laughs> Going back to what you said about wanting to own the script, I I agree with that because the script was so tasteful and restrained. Like I was amazed by how little they spoke and how much they communicated when they did speak. I feel like everything, almost everything, had two meanings, which is just so efficient. If anything else, like the. The line that comes to mind is when uh, Marianne is finishing the portrait and Eloise asks her, when do we know that it's finished? And she says, we don't know. We just stop. <laughs> and I felt like that 
because it comes at the end of their relationship also feels like a comment about them where it's like, how do we know when we're finished? And it's like, we don't, we just stop. When she first runs towards the cliffs and she's like, I've always wanted to do that. And it's like, what, die? And No, I've always wanted to run. There's something so wonderful about the language. I, I speak a little French enough to recognize some of the, the great wordplay. Like in that scene, exactly. The French to die is mourir, and then the French to run is courir. They're oh, literally wow. one letter apart. And so it's like a rhyming pun off of each other. I, it's funny when I saw the movie in theaters, I really thought Heloise was going to die somehow. I had that feeling too. Like I was really scared for her the whole time. <laughs> but I'm... I, I mean, A, I'm really glad that she didn't because I liked her a lot and I want her to be happy, uh, just as a character. But B, because I felt like that really would have been playing into the tragic queer love story trope. Yeah, totally. I think that's almost why I ultimately felt like it wasn't tragic because I was expecting so much more tragedy than there actually was. Like, oh, they'll both leap off the cliffs together, Thelma and Louise style, you know? Yeah, I wonder if, like, obviously it's not a happy ending because they're not together and that sucks and I love them together and I want them to be together. But I don't know that I I could call it fully sad either. More bittersweet because it, it reminds me of relationships in my life that I've had that were very intense uh, and very passionate and very loving that lasted, you know, one lasted two weeks but I'm going to I'm going to remember that person for the rest of my life and I'm not sad about that. I you know, maybe I wish we could have been together longer, but I'm I'm really it's it it's trite to say but better to have loved and lost than to never love at all, but I I really feel like that is true and I feel like that's what comes across in the last few scenes of this movie like when when Marianne sees Eloise the two times after their relationship, one as a painting and one in real life, both times she seems really happy just to know that she's still out there, that this wonderful woman still exists and remembers her. Like with the, the page of the book that she's holding in the painting and with her emotional reaction to the song at the orchestra at the end, like their lives are so much richer for having been in each other's lives that you know i think that it in some ways is a very not a very happy ending but a happy ending in in some sense that they are able to carry on the good things yeah and i also think there's an entire dialogue in the film about like what people really love like the memory of a person or the person that that comes up when they're talking about Orpheus and Eurydice. Eurydice, yeah. They're talking about, you know, why did he turn around? And I think it's Marianne who says maybe he wanted to remember her the way she was instead of know her as she is. And I think that comes up again when they're talking about painting. And the way it's supposed to objectively capture some essential essence of you because... You can never really be captured at all. I think it's interesting that when they're talking about Orpheus and Eurydice, that Eloise is the one who says maybe she's the one who told him to turn around. Like, it, it's, 
it's funny because I love that myth and I'm very familiar with it, but the, I've never heard it framed the way that they do, which the, the way that they talk about it in the movie, which is always so fun uh, when they're able to like reframe something you're so familiar with in a way that feels right, but you never thought of before. Yeah. Yeah. It almost feels like part of the movie's thesis is just that like, it's kind of like what you were saying before, like the point of love isn't necessarily to like hold on to it forever but like that that now that wouldn't have necessarily been the happiest ending although to be honest I could imagine and and I would watch a very long TV, premium tv series about their happy lives together absolutely I, and I, I don't think it's the happiest ending of course like the happiest ending is like they, they live in Paris and her husband is secretly gay and they just pretend to be married. Like, that's the happiest ending is that everyone has a beard. Totally. I, I want to take a moment, because like, we, we, like I mentioned offhand that there are four named characters in this script. I want to point out that all four are women and men in general are like nothing in this movie. Like, they, like the, the, even the Milanese gentleman, he's not a character. He's an obstacle. He's not a villain. He's just... He's an object that's in their way. And like, there are two speaking men in the entire movie. One's the ship captain who's just like, oh, hey. And then the other is the the guy at the gallery showing at the end who has a very nice comment about her painting but doesn't really do much. And I love that. I love how little men mattered in this movie. Like, I know that seems like such a woke bro thing to say, but it, it I seriously was just relieved that even though like, one of the main obstacles of the, the film is this patriarchal system of marriage. It wasn't about men. It was about these women and how they relate to each other. I, th- I thought that was a really beautiful element, too. And it was part of so much so much of what I loved. And like, I, I mean, this is so goofy, but I kept thinking, like, this is just like being at women's college, which it was not. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. But any, any like, all women's space, I'm like, oh, yes. Um, yeah, it was so, it's kind of like what Heloise says when she's talking about her experience in the convent, when she's like, equality is a pleasant feeling. And then from there, it feels like the film is just such a journey into like, this equality that the three women get to experience together. You know, even that one meal that they have together that I think Eloise is putting something in a is putting butter in a pan while Sophie sits there knitting and like, or stitching and. Marianne like pours them the wine. The wine. Yeah. And like, they're all just acting together and, and yeah, I just found that so beautiful. Yeah. And, and that it's such a small moment reveals so much more. It it felt, I, I remember that moment too. And thinking how not just happy, but content, they all seemed like they all seemed so content and i i there was that real like relaxed quality that you like that kind of relaxation that you crave with other people like when you can just be quiet with someone but both prepare dinner or like be in the car yeah it it felt like such a kinship such a social network yeah totally um and and yeah like you said like uh, a feeling of equality which i yeah, I, I I really like that. Like the mother is the one who represents sort of society at large, expectations, things like that. Because like 
I feel like having it be her mother makes it more complicated because she went through the same thing. Like her mother explicitly talks about how her marriage was pretty much the same deal as her daughter's marriage, but she's still putting her daughter through it, which makes it more, I feel like more nuanced and complex than if it was like a father figure being like, no, you will marry the man. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's really good that it's not like they're all in it together because they're not really like no not at all and and the mother even though like i'm i'm putting all this like societal shit on her the mother's really likable she's a really likable character i found like she's very clever and charming and witty and strong but she also is like playing into this idiotic system but it it's not idiotic at the time which I think is something that a lot of period pieces stumble on, where it seems like the filmmaker is preaching against the society that they are portraying. Whereas this film didn't feel that way. It didn't feel like any of the characters were like winking at the audience saying, ugh, things are so much better now, right? Like it just felt like, it, it felt as close as I've ever come in a movie to time travel of just like being there, being a fly on the wall, and just hearing them talk about about the things they would talk about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there was no, like, I loved how there was no, there was never, like, explanation secretly hidden in dialogue, you know? Like, when Sophie is running back and forth on the beach being pushed, I, like, sat there for a second being like, what the heck? Is this, like, an old-time sport? And then realized, like, oh, no, she's trying to, like, exert herself to such a degree that she miscarries, and I just thought that was so brilliant to just be like, yeah, you have to fucking figure it out. And also it made the whole thing feel not like common, but it gave it a certain like, I don't know. I feel like if there had been some kind of like discussion about like, oh, you know, we have to help Sophie and do some miscarriage like or whatever, it would have this that scene would have had this like loaded gravitas. Instead, it was just like procedural. I don't know. I'm not really finding the right word. It, 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 there's a horrible word that describes it, I think, called quotidian. Uh, I call it a horrible word because it's, it's so alienating when you use a word like that, but it, it means like day to dayness. Like, like, not that it's unimportant, not that it's minimized, but just that it is part of day to day life. Also, like, there was a kind of like, I don't know, like innocence to it. Yeah, like of yeah. just like we're like, just picking, we're picking the flowers that we need to make the tea, or running back and forth on the beach, and then hanging from this banister. It felt really removed from like any contemporary conversations about ending a pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. Which I I really loved because again, it didn't. It felt like there was no moral weight put on anything that they were doing it was just a matter of necessity which i think is a great way to frame the issue of abortion as like this is part of life um exactly yeah just like another part of life that's being like dealt with and do you know the tv show shrill with ad bryant yeah we just finished that i i i just watched the first episode the other day and they deal with abortion in much the same way of like yeah this is a medical procedure this is just something to deal with this is something that comes up. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only moment where I got, like, I felt the contemporary, like, lens in that was, like, in the actual, during the actual abortion scene. 
I think partially just because I like found it really hard to watch. I was like, oh my god, the pain of the she's like enduring. Just I I was like physically getting like faint, like just being like, oh my god. But yeah. even that scene, it was so beautifully shot, and there was something so like just the idea, you know, like to get an abortion, you didn't have to use to like find a women's health clinic that then you walk through metal detectors to go through and potentially encounter protesters you know you would find a woman who was like a medicine woman in her community and like the families all there it was so domestic i loved that it was domestic you know yeah that it wasn't something separate from normal life it wasn't in this like liminal space of the clinic like it was in someone's home on someone's bed with a baby on the bed with her yeah that and that just felt like so mind-blowing you know i i just got chills just thinking about it because it like i think it's wonderful the way that it brings the two together like it brings this issue of abortion into the family space and and treats it as in no way separate from having a family. I think we'd all be a lot better off if we thought of it that way. Like, well, and it's it's the reason family is the reason that a lot of women end pregnancies, whether you know they just they feel like they don't want another child or they know they want a child like down the road, and so ending one pregnancy is actually the reason that another family ten years later gets to exist. And that's not really, like, talked about that, like, those two things are related, like, and, but that scene really captures it. And and there was just something really beautiful, too, that, like, nestled into this amazing love story was also a story of these two women, like, caring for another woman who really needed it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. That they weren't, I, I feel like a lot of love stories put love on a pedestal as the most important thing at the very least within the world of the movie and and it's so nice to see them care about someone else and not to to be to to not be selfish because i feel like so many love stories have selfish protagonists and you can debate whether or not that's a good thing or part of love or something blah 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 or what the movie's about but it's so nice to just see Eloise and Marianne take care of Sophie and 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 more than take care of her care about her like when Eloise insists that Marianne paint a recreation of the abortion scene because it's worth painting that scene really gave me chills both time because because it just made me think about and I, I literally know nothing about art history so it's possible that there's lots of these kinds of paintings but my guess would be that there's a lot of paintings of women's life like that that just don't exist you know and it just yeah it really struck me of just like wow what what would art history look like if women got to paint the moments that like mattered to them the most you know even like when Marion is talking about how she's not allowed to paint men nude because you know, oh, then women would be as good as the men. There is such a clear, you know, restriction on her as an artist. Yeah, I think she calls it, um, she says something like, so that we can't paint the great moments or the great right. subjects, implying that all the great subjects are men. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So even Marianne is buying into this stupid 
you know, patriarchal bullshit when it comes to her own world of art. Well, yeah, maybe she's buying into it, but maybe it's another example of what you said earlier of like a line operating on two things at once where she's saying like, yeah, so we can't paint the great subjects. I don't remember it exactly if there's like a wink, a, a twinkle in her eye, but... Um, there, There is a bit. If yeah. I, 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 I watched it that's two days ago. Yeah, that's a good point. I, it probably was more... Knowing Marianne, as well as we do know her. <laughs> our best, <laughs> it, our best friend. <laughs> but uh, what, I, what I'm linking it to is the moment when Eloise sees the first portrait that uh, Marianne makes... And, like, Eloise just rips it to shreds. And Marion's like, well, it's not just me. There's forms. There's, like, laws and rules about this stuff. Like, putting it on some structure outside of herself. Um, and I think that what Eloise says really cuts through that by saying, like, it's fine that it doesn't look like me. What bothers me is that it's not close to you. Like, you don't care about it even. And you made it. <laughs> Uh, which I thought was, oh God, talk just uh, such a wonderful scene. Uh, yeah, that scene is so amazing. And then just the way that she takes that cloth to Eloise's face. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, you know, like, oh my God. I just had no, I just think it's such a beautiful way that the story unfolds and gets them to spend more time together. Absolutely. And it felt very real and natural like it didn't feel like a writer's contrivance to keep them together like it felt like oh yeah that's that's what i would do then <laughs> too yeah and it's really great because i think up until that moment eloise is kind of portrayed as the more emotional character where marianne's kind of the reasonable one who's saying like but milan is nice and like she's kind of and then i love that moment when marianne loses control because it just proves that uh, Eloise has gotten under her skin, you know? Yeah, like, sh she's vulnerable, too. Exactly. I love how little secrecy there was in the movie. Yes. Like, it feels like everyone is very honest, like, to the point of a Wes Anderson movie level of honesty, even though the central conceit of the first half of the movie is that Marianne is lying to Eloise and pretending to be her companion rather than a painter. Even then, like... It, it doesn't matter. Like, the lie is incidental, and when she tells her the truth, she's just, she's hurt. Eloise is hurt, of course, but it's not, you lied to me, I never want to see you again, like you might expect from, like, an American rom-com made in the 1990s. I'm so used to contrivances in romantic films to keep the lovers apart that it was nice that there really isn't one other than the overarching one. You know, like, other than... Eloise's imminent marriage and their own emotional baggage. Yeah. When the film started, I thought my expectations were like, this entire film will take place and she's lying to her the entire time. And like what you said, when, the dis when it's discovered, it'll be this huge blow up. And I loved how it played with my expectations. And it's like, first of all, that's just the setup of the film. Second of all, like there's... There is no expected blow-ups, really. I guess Marianne and Eloise have that fight. Are you talking about the scene when Marianne has finished the second portrait and she's like, through this painting, I give you to another, and they have a fight? That's the only part where the dialogue felt like too abstracted for me. I still don't totally know what they're trying to communicate to each other. Yeah, that scene... It's interesting. I know 
what you mean where it's like I feel like I don't have full like I haven't fully accessed that scene like it hasn't fully let me in so that I can understand what they're saying but it feels like it feels different than oh the writing is unclear it feels like the characters know what they're saying and what they're saying is consistent throughout the scene and I just don't understand it yet yeah, that's how I feel. Like, almost it's written so much from the character's perspective that the audience isn't fully let in on it. Yeah. And it's partly just that honesty, honesty thing again, that they're being so honest. Like, when Eloise is like, you're angry at me, aren't you? Like, you are projecting a bunch of stuff on me that you think I'm feeling right now or that you're, like, twist that you, you, you're projecting happiness onto me that I'm about to get married, aren't you? And Marianne's like, yes, but it's this dark, angry part of my brain that I know isn't real, but I'm going to tell you about it because I trust you with it. Which felt really honest and real. Like, that's something people do. Like, they construct obstacles for themselves rather than being happy with the obstacles life has already dealt them. And, like, Marianne even almost goes so far as to call it a coping mechanism like she doesn't use the exact words but she's like it's just to make it easier for me yes yeah but of course that pisses eloise off too which is totally fair like (laughs) yeah it almost seems like eloise is unhappy at the possessive nature of love itself i like that eloise makes it more conceptual about like wow this is even in the best case scenario of like love it also comes with this dark side that's a really interesting point that i i really hadn't thought of that before that eloise is in and and it as soon as you say it, it makes sense that eloise is really just angry that love turns us into these people who are jealous and petty well because i think that and and I think a lot of this is just projecting it because, like I said, I find that scene a little cryptic. But, like, I think what Eloise is feeling is just, you know, I have to go marry this man. You know, it really does feel like this is about survival. This is the way that marriage used to be for centuries. It was about, like, uniting families, securing wealth for your family. And so I feel like what Eloise is expressing in this scene is, like, don't resent me or feel possessive about something that, I don't really have choice in, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're making me want to rewatch the movie again already because I want to, like, just pick that scene apart and try to understand it better. Because, like you said, it is cryptic. It is cryptic. And I'm glad that even that... Even that separation doesn't last too long because they both like come to the realization of like we don't have much time together. Let's not waste it in fighting. Like let's let's be together for the time we have. And I I think even the last time that they're in bed together, Marianne says something to Eloise, something along the lines of, "Don't regret, remember," which I I think is a beautiful summation of the whole movie. Like, don't regret, just remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about the amazing song in the middle? I love it. Yes, let's talk about the amazing song in the middle. It's so good. That whole First scene. First of all, that scene was exactly like women's college. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone being spookily in the dark singing a weird song that we all weirdly know. <laughs> um, and is never addressed and never explained. Yeah, exactly. 
I looked it up actually, and I think that song, it's like she, the director had her friend compose it for her, uh, but she won't give out like the lyrics. Like no one knows what it means at all. <laughs> That's so frustrating because I want it on but an it's, album. <laughs> it's somehow related to the novel Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is like a novel that uh, features prominently in the L word. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know that the um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra is also the title of the song from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, the, you know, that's the really interesting. Really? Bwah, yeah, that one. Very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. I loved how it was like, in, in a way, it was very jarring because like, it's such a, it was such a produced piece of music all of a sudden dropped into this otherwise very natural film but i loved it yeah i i absolutely i mean that whole scene soup to nuts i love because it's it's so little is explained just like the rest of the movie like we don't know like who these women are where they are like are they still on the island or did they go to the coast like what's going on and like how did sophie know about this but like i i also don't care like i'm i'm fine with it i'm rolling with it like it doesn't it's not it makes sense. To me, it makes so much sense. And I also feel like it does something really interesting, again, that's class-related, where, like, there's a real sense of pretty harsh loneliness and solitude in Eloise's world. You know, like, even the shots of the home where she lives is so barren. Their estate is very barren. And, like, her biggest thing is getting to go on a walk every day. But Sophie has access to this entire other world of, like, the village, you know, that is more communal and connected. And, yeah, I really just loved that she was bringing them into that world for, like, a moment, you know? Absolutely. Like, it had, like, a wonderful equality to it. It felt like a bigger version of the scene we were talking about earlier when they're cooking dinner together it felt like the like the super version of that like if you if you took that feeling of community and turned it into a lifestyle it would be this village with these women um and i loved how that scene plays with like diegesis um which context for the listener diegesis basically is the question of is something happening in the world of the movie or is it happening in the movie as a movie like um like film music if a radio playing if a radio is playing in a scene that's diegetic music if a score swells up during a montage that's non-diegetic class dismissed what I love about that scene is the way it plays with diegesis, how when the women first start circling up and singing, it's unclear that they are the ones singing. It feels like it could be non-diegetic score, but then it's revealed that it's these women are producing this like ethereal harmony with each other. And then the lyrics come in and it builds this beautiful rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one shot in particular I want to call out from that scene and it's not the gorgeous shot of Eloise on fire which is incredible but it's the shot of Marianne when she's listening to the women sing she's shot on a black background in perfect profile and it looks exactly like the sort of silhouette like cameo piece that people 
had back then, like would would carry of their loved ones. Like if you look up like Revolutionary War period America, there's all sorts of like drawings like that, like cameos, perfect profile, but reversed, which is just it's it's just like a little sort of they did their homework moment. Totally. Like it feels like a very nice nod to the period that the film is set in. Mm-hmm. I guess with the time we have left, um, let's talk a little bit about Marianne as a bisexual. I just think she is. Is that bad? <laughs> I don't think it's bad. I guess we can talk about how well-rounded she is as a character, which is nice to see for a bisexual. We're not going to see... Yeah, I feel like this is the total opposite of the talented Mr. Ripley. She doesn't really appear to have any hang-ups related to her sexuality. She seems very free. Like, she's definitely not killing anyone, which I love. <laughs> we we love to see a non-murderous bisexual. We love it, <laughs> yeah. And I love how her sexuality isn't constricted in any way. Like, this film is about this relationship, and so it's about two women. But it, it, it there's never a comment on her relationships with mm-hmm. men or with other women. It's just that it's not what this movie is about. Like, it's it's not invalidating it. It's not comparing it. It's just not talking about it, other than yeah. the s- simplest mentions, which I, I think is just incredibly nice to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, and it also, it's interesting because I think there's kind of, like, there's early films with like queer and bi characters specifically that kind of portray them as villains because that used to be a chill way to think. But then I also I also think there's that um, the reaction to that, which is films that go way over the top trying to like heroize the queer characters. And what I love about this film is even though I think like her relationship with Marion is completely central, it's just like it doesn't feel like a ploy at all. You know, it doesn't feel like it it feels completely like natural. And it feels like the film is also about 10,000 other important things like art history and memory and, you know, like um, the the nature of love itself as an abstract. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It's so nice that it's not, it's it's neither a villain piece or like conflicted tragic piece or a you know the gays they're just like us exactly. sort of thing yeah exactly like yeah and it's it's not going out of its way to further a point it's an it's it's doing what art is meant to do which is raise questions and explore issues and be ambiguous but beautiful yeah which is just, it's just really nice that the the sexuality of the characters is almost the least interesting question about this movie. Yeah. Which is interesting because in Talented Mr. Ripley, it feels so... Central. Central to why he's bad. In, yeah. And it in feels this, so critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this film, it's just one complex part of... A complex character you know yeah and it's and it's it strikes that beautiful balance between sexuality being everything and sexuality being nothing yeah like totally. I, I feel like part, yeah part of that reaction that reactionary phase that you mentioned is being like 
like, yeah, she's a lesbian, but, like, she has friends, yeah. and she, she, it doesn't matter. Like, what does it matter? It doesn't matter. What are you talking about? Yeah, she's a lesbian. Don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's no good for anybody. Like, yeah. <laughs> whereas really it's just, it's a fact. It's a fact about these characters. Um, the same as, the, the like, a, a fact that Marianne's a painter, and that Eloise used to be in a convent. Like, it's part of what makes them who they are, but it's not their defining trait. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you want to play a quick round of Mary Fuck Kill before you go? Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Sophie's age is ambiguous, so let's leave her out of this. <laughs> which leaves us, yeah, which leaves us three characters the Countess, Eloise's mother, Eloise herself, and then Marianne. I had not thought of this before the podcast, so I'm happy to let you go first. Okay, I feel like what's confusing for me is that I want to kill the Countess. But then I don't want to fuck or marry Heloise or Marion. I want to allow them to fuck and marry each other now that sh- the Countess is out of the way. But if I had to choose, I would probably, um, you know, sleep with Eloise and hopefully marry Marion. But she seems wild to me. Like, she does not seem built for the commitment. Monogamy. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Um... <laughs> well, first off, I think you're being very unfair to the Countess. Although I, I would also kill her, um, if only be by default. Like I, I would kill her with nothing but respect. And, and don't be so possessive. Just because you're fucking and marrying one of the two doesn't mean that they can't fucking marry each other. Like, isn't that the point Eloise is making? That like love shouldn't be possessive. That's true. <laughs> I'm not really advocating for that point, but I'm gonna say it because it's funny and this is a podcast. Um, I think I would go the reverse, though. I think I would sleep with Marianne for the very reason that you hesitate to marry her, because, like, it seems like she and I would sleep together and she would enjoy it, and then she would go about her life and never think about me twice, which is totally fine in my book. Uh, But then, like, I would marry Eloise because she seems like the sort of person who would, like, be very committed to making a relationship work. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Like, even even if she's not in love with me, which she wouldn't be because she's still in love with Marianne, I'm fine with that. We can have a happily and successful marriage together without being in love. I'm totally okay. Like, we'll just be very successful, very cultured Milanese nobles. I love that. I love that for both of you. <laughs> You'll love to see it. Thanks for listening to Snails and Oysters, created by Nat Roberts and Allie Rogers, with music by Billy Libby and artwork by Abby Austin. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And if you don't like this podcast, I don't know, share it with your enemies? <laughs>